Rec House Ramblings, episode number 10, take one. Welcome to Rack House Ramblings. I'm Jeff, and this is episode number 10. Finally, spring is here, man. Spring is actually here. You know, one of the ways I know is uh, hummingbirds. That's right. So uh, because we have a feeder right out my back door on the, on the deck out back here, and uh, there's a feeder out there. So Ann puts out a, a hummingbird feeder every year since we moved in. I should say every year, but we've been here a couple of years now. And um, it's her mother-in-law told us she like left instructions to Ann, right? Put the feeder out on May 1st. That was that's the rule. And I didn't know this, but um, if you put the feeder out and uh, you catch the hummingbirds as they migrate north, and if they stop and know there's food here, they'll stay for the summer. No shit, it works. So this is our second summer, like I was saying, and we've had success here uh, two summers now. Sure enough, the hummingbird came back. We've got flowers blooming, we've got trees budding, we've got grass turning green. Now we need some more warmer temperatures. It's uh, uh, May the 12th, I think I'm recording this right now, and it's been pretty chilly, but we're calling for warmer weather uh, this week, so that's pretty cool. Um, I got breaking news on this week's show. Rackhouse Ramblings, check this out, is now available for your listening pleasure on YouTube. That's right, check me out. I have a YouTube channel, and what's happening is um, it's just audio for now, so they'll put up a graphic of my uh, little logo that I put up, and you can listen to it on uh, YouTube. And uh, so if you want, I get, for now there's no video. I don't have anyone asking for video to see my ugly mug, but I suppose in the future if we wanted to do a video, I could do it. I've got the capability to do it. But anyway, so anyway, we're on YouTube. Check it out for now. Episode number 10. Who would have thought like we'd have made it this far? So I've got almost 500 listens so far from all my episodes. That's pretty cool. I want to tell everyone thank you very, very, very much. It was pretty cool. And uh, oh, you know what else I have here? I'm looking through my, my show notes. I got an update. So the last podcast, I talked about something called the Fatberg. And just a reminder, the Fatberg was this big chunk of fat and uh flushable toilet wipes that was stuck in the sewer in Macomb County, right? So that was on my episode number nine. I talked about uh, Great Lakes now and all that. But um, in that episode of the show I watched, uh, they interviewed uh, the county commissioner, Candace Williams, and she talked about what a big hassle and how it's like uh, uh, deceiving that the label says it's a flushable wipe and all that. Well, guess what? She filed a lawsuit this week uh, and she's going after those companies that make flushable wipes. You know, it, that, her point being, I remember from the interview is that just because it's flushable, that doesn't equate to biodegradable. No shit. So um, if I hear of any more uh, updates on that, I'll make sure I mention it to you. So um, also on this week's show, I'm going to talk about uh, going up north over my last four day. Ann and I went on a sweet overnight backpack adventure. Um, then I'm going to also talk about uh, a travel update for this week. I got one, sh one trip was canceled and a new trip is planned. So that's pretty cool. And then this week uh, in the bourbon spotlight, I'm going to do another mixed drink. Everyone kind of liked the mixed drink thing. I liked it. It was kind of cool. So we're going to do another one. It's a springtime uh, kind of theme to it. I like it. And I think you will too. Then I'm going to visit another cool book to read. This one's pretty sweet. It's one of my absolute favorites about Northern Michigan. So uh, we got a lot on the agenda today. So stay tuned and there's more to come. I'll be right back. Okay, we're back with this uh, segment. I'm going to call it the the adventure segment. So um, 
I got, oh, yeah, we'll call it adventure. How's that? So a few days ago, we uh, just wrapped up a four-day uh, at work. And over the four-day, Ann and I went up north to our cabin. It's our first time up this year. Uh, I was anxious to get up, but we wanted to uh, make sure we don't, uh, we follow that stay-at-home policy, right? So now it's pretty much been lifted, or for the most part, at least half of it, you can go to your cabin and all that sort of thing. So anyway, Ann and I drove up on Friday, returned on Monday. Uh, like I was saying, it's the first time up. And I'll tell you what, let me start with traffic. Holy shit, I, you're, that's right. Traffic. You would have thought it was a freaking holiday weekend. So we leave the house at noon, and I think everyone else had the same idea. It was crazy. The good news was you could drive just about as fast as you want. No, nobody was getting pulled over. It was pretty pretty hard. I, I usually do about 80 miles an hour, but people were just flying by me. So we drive up, and we stop at uh, Frank's Outdoor World in Pinconning. And if you haven't heard of this place, Frank's um, Outdoor World is a sporting goods store. You know, let me, I guess, let me rephrase that. It is like a top-notch sporting goods store. They have guns, they have archery, they have fishing stuff, they have boots, they have um, good hunting clothes, like the nice stuff that you see in the, mag read about in the magazines and all that. Um, nothing there is cheap, but I'll tell you what, they really specialize in high-quality shit. If you want um, the good stuff, I would, I would suggest stopping by Frank's. Um, if you want, like, inexpensive, just stuff to uh, get you through the season or two or whatever, I would stop by... Uh, uh, what's the other outdoor <laughs> Northwoods outlet in Pinconning, which is a pretty cool place. I stop there every time. But um, if you want like the higher end, higher quality, things like that, go to Frank's. So anyway, um, to get there, it's on M13 Pinconning. That's just off uh, I-75, about 10 minutes off of the freeway. So if you drive up north a lot, you know at one point I-75 goes north and M13 splits off right after Bay City. You can just follow that straight up. And the two run... I guess uh, parallel to each other, like railroad tracks, but farther apart. So uh, anyway, it's I think it's worth the extra 10 minutes. So we stop in there, got a new fishing license, and bought a pair of shoes. I bought some flies, you know, to go fly fishing. Um, then we continued on to the cabin. It was a nice sunny afternoon, really comfortable, not too hot, not too cold. Uh, we showed up, we opened up the cabin. And when I get there, I like to open all the windows, all the doors, get in the fresh air, because there's like a, a stale cabin smell from the winter like everything is just kind of a little bit stale so I open everything up turn on the well pump and to my surprise there's no leaks so for me that doesn't happen every year it seems like you know you shut down the cabin you drain the pipes no matter what you do there's always a little bit of water somewhere and I'm telling you I have burst pipes every year holy crap it, and I bring a plumbing box as I know it's going to happen every year but this year was pretty sweet so anyway no leaks we unpacked, had a sandwich. Um, we like to do a walk around the compound, I call it. So we have a little 10-acre parcel. And 10 acres sounds like a lot, but really, um, it's like a 15-minute walk. You do a circle and uh, circle around. I always like to kind of just see every year there's trees falling, there's branches falling. Sometimes you'll find a, a, like a pile of animal bones and things like that, things that have happened over the winter. Um, once I even found like a nice uh, antler shed from a four-point uh, well, a four-point shed being an eight-point buck. I could never find the other half. But another time I found a doe skull. Another time I found a pile of turkey feathers. And you just never know what you're going to find. So I did find that my quad was dead. The damn battery. Uh, I'm not sure what happened between the trickle charger and the battery. So that kind of sucked because I usually like to do some yard work and ride the quad around and things like that. But, you know, what are you going to do? So did some yard work. We um, raked the leaves away from last year that kind of collected over the winter. And the reason we do that, it keeps the mosquitoes away. Um, the leaves will collect water and the mosquitoes get to uh, lay eggs and things like that. So we kind of cleaned up. Uh, Ann was raking. I was blowing leaves. 
Um, so anyway, that evening we drove to the Asabo for some fly fishing, which is probably about 15 minutes from my front door. And I go to my favorite spot. It's a scenic outlook um, just upstream from 4001 Bridge, if you know the area near Glenny. And I've been going there for years and years. And it's usually an easy spot to wade in. There's always fish there. But this year when I got down there, it was kind of a different story. The, water, the river was uh, really high. It was really flowing fast. And I didn't even think about it, but there had been a, a lot of rain recently. So fly fishing was tough. It was pretty much a no-go. So we didn't fish for very long. So we got back to the car and, and I drove over to the bridge so I could try uh, some more fishing. But this is a different kind. It's called magnet fishing. You might have seen it on uh, Instagram or on YouTube or something like that. Um, what it is, is you get this, this rare earth magnet, which is super powerful and you tie it on to, uh, the end of a paracord, right? Like a rope and you toss it in the water. Um, so you, you like throw it in, but look, it goes down and, uh, you drag, let it drag on the bottom. And with any luck, you'll find some treasure. So this is my first time. Well, I shouldn't say it. it's really my second time magnet fishing. The first time I went over to Heinz park and was in the Rouge river and the water there is sh shallow and a lot slower. Um, I was able to, to f get a couple of fishing lures, like hooks and things like that, and a piece of rebar. So it was kind of, either way, it's junk, but it was treasure. It was kind of cool. So I took it up north with me, and the Asabo River is a whole different ballgame. This water is ripping, and it was murky, and it was deep. I said, what the heck, and I kind of throw this magnet in. It's a little three-pound magnet, but it'll pick up over 500 pounds. <laughs> That's right. I said 500 freaking pounds. So... I drop it in, you hear a galump, and the magnet tries to get to the bottom, but the water was going so fast, it barely even touched the bottom. So I tried it probably for a good 30 minutes or so, both sides of the bridge, upstream, downstream, and all that. It didn't, uh, didn't pan out, didn't get anything, but anyway, I tried it. So we go back, uh, called in a night, and I, I slept great that night. We uh, I always sleep good when I'm at the cabin. We had this uh, light breakfast, and the weather was overcast. We kind of had our plan for the day. Um, it started out with just a few sprinkles, but we said, you know what, let's do it. We're here. Let's do this. So we brought our backpacks and, um, our goal was to try and do some overnight camping and where I'm at, my property backs up to the Huron national forest. So we can walk right out the back door, right out the property and you're in the Huron national forest. And we want to do it because this is Ann's first backpacking trip and really my second one. Um, so it's not like I'm a seasoned pro or veteran or anything like that. So anyway, it's a perfect place for novices like us. It's mostly flat. There's no hills. All the trails are well marked. And the funny thing is like most backpackers, like we packed and unpacked and dealt stuff the evening before, make sure you don't forget anything. And you kind of have to just be satisfied and go with it, you know? And the whole idea is you try and bring everything you think you'll need but not have your pack be too heavy. So we weighed our packs. Anne's weighed in, I think it was 25 pounds, and mine was like 31, if I remember right. And we said, you know what? If we forget it, we forget it. Let's just go. And so we walked out the back door of the cabin. And like I was saying, it was a little bit overcast and uh, a little bit, uh, just barely sprinkling a little bit. So we, we knew the weather was supposed to clear up, so we said, heck with it. And we walk out the back door, and at probably about a mile back, we come across Reed Lake. And it's beautiful back there. It's quiet. It's pristine. And I'm looking around. I go, what? And sure as shit, there's people camping back here. And I thought to myself, what the crap, you know? So Reed Lake, it's called Reed, Label, Reed Lake Foot Travel Area. And it means there's no cars, no bikes, no horses, no ATVs, foot travel only. So you have to walk and hike back there. So that means somebody else walked a mile back. There's a parking lot on M72 where you pay your little parking spot, pay your money, and go. But... 
because of the uh, Corona stuff, they aren't charging, so it's free. So anyway, on this lake, there's two campsites, one on each side of the lake. And if you camp there, you end up having the whole lake to yourself. It's absolutely beautiful. You can throw in a fishing line, you can catch bluegill, you can catch perch. They stock it with trout, although I've never caught a trout. But we've seen so much stuff back there. Uh, bald eagles, we've seen a bald eagle catch a fish out of there. There's a, uh, a at one end of the lake is where a beaver uh, has a beaver lodge. You'll see him swimming around. We've seen deer. Uh, like I was saying last fall, I saw a bear and a cub back there, black bear. So anyway, um, the funny thing was, I'm like back there, I spent hours and hours and hours, like during the summer, during hunting season, sometimes even during the winter. And I might come across people maybe once or twice a year, almost never. So I chalked this one up to nice weather and, and the free parking that they had out there. So anyway, we keep hiking and our plan was to go back to a place called Little Trout Lake. Um, it was further south, at like the south end of the park, about five miles away, maybe a little more. And if, if you're a backpacker, I know Dane and a few other guys, but the five miles isn't much. That's what you would do um, before lunch. So in a day, if you could do 10 miles, that's pretty good. And, you know, seasoned practice, they go even further. But anyway, for novices like Ann and me, you know, this was uh, our total distance so, for the day. So after about two and a half, three hours, we make it back there. I like to stop and look at things on the way and whatever. So um, we get back to this little trout lake, and they have two campsites as well. And guess what? No shit. Somebody was already on one of the campsites. I couldn't freaking believe it. So we're five miles plus back off M72, and someone else had the same freaking plan. <laughs> it was crazy. So he said, you know what? That's okay. Um, they're on the other side of the lake. We're on this side of the lake, and... Um, and, you know, speaking of that, I guess it's, they call it a lake, but it was really more a flooded beaver pond. And it was had like a dam at one end and a beaver lodge and all that. It was really, really nice. I'll try and put a picture on uh, Instagram of uh, what it looked like. So we get there, we drop our packs, you know, we had lunch. By now the sun is coming out and it was real, like we both kind of, you are more than welcome to. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back with the next segment. All right, Rackhouse Ramblings, let's get into the travel segment. This is gonna, this is kind of exciting to me. So I, I have a travel update and I've mentioned on previous shore shows that uh, Ann and I were gonna go to Yellowstone and that trip was canceled because of the coronavirus, right? So with that being said, I still have my vacation days picked and I wanted to uh, go do something. Still, I wanted to travel, instead of flying, we're gonna drive and I wanted to go out west and visit a national park. So I picked Theodore Roosevelt National Park in Medora, North Dakota. And if you've never heard of Medora, North Dakota, I didn't either, but I had to look it up. It's the, the far western edge of North Dakota near the Montana border. And from Detroit, it's about an 18-hour drive. So our plan is leave Detroit, um, stop for the night somewhere in Wisconsin. I think it's Eau Claire or Eau Claire. I'm not sure how you say it. I'll find out when I'm there, right? And you're probably saying, Ted, at Theodore Roosevelt National Park, why did I choose that? Well, it's because I'm a fan of TR. And I threw that in there. That's TR short for Teddy Roosevelt. So if you're in the know, you know what TR means, right? So the town of Medora was part of his uh, life story because he went there and uh, bought a cattle ranch and was a cattle rancher for a while. Um, he spent quite a bit of time there, as a matter of fact. And he wrote uh, about a lot of it in a book called um, Hunting Trip of a Ranch Man and The Wilderness Hunter. It's kind of two separate books, but they're in one. So one, I'll talk about more about the book in another episode. But for now, we'll focus on the trip. So at the park, they have the, the ranch house 
uh, on display where he used to live. You can hike through all the land he used to hunt and see the inspiration for his book. And I think, in my opinion, I guess this area also inspired his passion to preserve our uh, uh, wildlands and uh, prairies and like the big country and all that. He's the guy that is really behind all the national parks. And if you've listened, you know I'm a huge fan of that, of having our national parks. So I'm going to go there, see what the inspiration is, see some different country and things like that. Um, I mean, I even talked Ann into uh, taking our backpacks and she agreed to do an overnight uh, camp out in the Badlands. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, there's going to be mule deer, buffalo, antelope, all kinds of critters and things like that. And then while we're out there too, my plan is to visit uh, the National Prairie Reserve, which is out there too. It's like, I don't know, a million square acres of prairie or something. They want it to look like the original prairie when the settlers first went out there. So that's going to be the update. That'll be at the end of the month, the 30th or the 1st that we're going to go. And I will uh, give you guys an update and report back and probably throw some pictures on Instagram and things like that. So there's your travel update. Stay right there. I'll be right back with Moose Segment. Okay, I'm back. Rackhouse Ramblings, episode number 10. Now, this segment kind of come up on a whim. It's more like a, a question that I want to throw out to you guys, right? So the other night, uh, I was in the bourbon room. I shouldn't say other night. Other afternoon, we're in the bourbon room. Spent some time with a few of the guys I work with. And um, we shared some stories. We shared some bourbon. And really, when I say shared bourbon, it wasn't a lot. We did like a couple of tastings. And it's really just a few teaspoons, right? And really, we shared a bunch of laughs and kind of relaxed and um, let off some steam, you know. And, but after it was over, um, I guess Ann asked me the question, you know, um, Ann asked me, or I guess I'm asking myself, was it wrong? Did we break the rule of social distancing, right? Did we violate the rule of self-quarantine? So I wanted to ask you guys what you think. So to, to back it up, I, I took everyone's temperature as they walked in. And when I say everyone, I say me and three other people, right? And um, nobody has anything, any uh, fever, anything like that. So we kind of tried to be a little bit responsible, right? And so we go down to the bourbon room, we talk, we laugh, tasted bourbon, had uh, I think one or two beers each and that was it. But did we break the rules? Did we, you know, for the distancing, right? My bourbon room is not, it's imagine yourself sitting across from a table, right? So the other catch, I guess catch or fact is that, so these guys I work with. And so whether we social distance here in the bourbon room, the studio, or we social distance at the station. Is there a difference, right? I don't know. In my head, I don't think so. And to boot, you know, we all had, uh, uh, we went to get tested, and of course they're out of swabs. I don't care what the commercials say, first responders get so fucked on this deal. We've this twice now it's supposed to have been tested and there's no swabs, right? So they did the blood test. Of course, myself and no one I work with on our crew has the antibodies, which I'm still not sure about as well. But anyway, so we were all tested, we are all responsible, but did we break any rules? You know, you guys let me know. Somebody shoot me a, an email at rackhouserambling at gmail.com or shoot me a text or something. Let me know what you think. So here we are, we are at work. And for me, it's more like uh, when, I, when I'm at work, we're at work, you know, we kind of have your game face on. We goof around and all that. But when you're outside of work, it's a little more relaxing. It's kind of nice to hang out with the guys and not be at work and not talk about work. So I can, uh, we can be, we have a friendship, we're brothers, right? So I want to spend time with my brothers, with my family, but is it, is it wrong? 
huh, think about it. I wanted to throw that out to you guys and see what you think. So it felt good to, to hang out with Kevin, Aaron, and, and Dylan came over too. And, you know, we didn't even talk about any of that. Well, I guess we touched on it a little bit, but we kind of, uh, it was more or less letting off steam because we're all, or letting off stress, right? Because we're all working under these conditions. And it was nice to just not talk about it and talk about other things. We talked about bourbon. We talked about guitars. We talked about podcasting and things like that. And um, let me know what you think. You know, I we're about, I know everyone's kind of sick of this thing. We need to make it a couple more weeks. But as a first responder or frontliner, is it wrong to gather outside of work? You know, and it not, wasn't necessarily a party. It was just a, a little social thing, a stress relief thing. And uh, we had some snacks and that was it. And I think it was by six or seven o'clock we were done. So it was not a late night by any means. So I'm throwing it out to you. Let me know what you guys think. I'll be uh, right back with another segment. I'm back and this is uh, a cool book to read segment. I'm, I'm really excited about this one. This is um, an interesting book. I've had this book for a number of years now. And uh, so this is a cool book to read. It's called The Old Asabo by Hazen Miller. And it's about the Asabo River. So this copy, it's an old book, old hardcover, and it was originally published in 1963. I found uh, a reprint version from 1975. Um, it's not a, a large book or a long read by any means. And I probably, this I think my fourth time reading it now, and I'm sure I'll read it a bunch more times. I like learning about all the history stuff, but the author writes about the history of the Asabo and the town of Grayling. And what's really cool, it's from Native American times up until I think the 40s or 50s gives you the time area. But the real juicy stuff um, to me is like the early 1900s and late 1800s. So I enjoy reading about this history stuff, and the author goes in depth about why the Asabo River and the town of Grayling have always been a popular area. Like one of the things I didn't know is that um, Native Americans would paddle up the Asabo River from the mouth, the mouth of it's at Lake Huron, where Ascoda is today. And believe it or not, there were two towns at Ascoda where that river comes in. One side of the river was Ascoda, the other side was the town of Asabo. And they both burned down more than once. So Asabo never came back as a town, but Ascoda did. So anyway, Native Americans would start out the Asabo at the mouth of, in Lake Huron. They'd paddle all the way to where the river begins, upstream, long before there were any dams. And when you get all the way to upstream, um, you'd have to portage your canoe. What that means is carry it, take it out of the water, put it over your shoulders through the woods. And um, they'd go all the way up to, it's called Lake Marguerite. And then from there, they'd paddle across, and then they'd portage over to the Manistee River. And it's I think it's probably about a day's hike to get between the two, probably even less than that, five miles or something like that. I'd have to look at a map. But then they'd get in the Manistee River and paddle all the way downstream to Lake Michigan. So if you know anything about history, but waterways were like the superhighway of, uh, of the day back then. So think about it. You could go from Lake Huron all the way to Lake Michigan. Sounds pretty cool, but so because of that, that's one of the reasons the town of Grayling is kind of important. It's always been kind of a hub of activity. So, and eventually like fur traders learned this and they did the same thing and so did logging people. So speaking of logging, I'm sure you already know, but that whole area around Grayling was a huge logging hub, like the whole industry. And the author talks about, um, 
a few of the logging boom towns, which was kind of neat. And these small towns, they would spring up, they'd become prosperous, and then they died when all the trees were cut down. And one of the cool towns that was lost is called Deward. It's D-E-W-A-R-D. But it was named after a guy named David Ward, D period Ward. And um, the book follows this timeline um, of Deward and how it came and went. And one of the neat things was, I shouldn't say neat, it was kind of kind of sad is they built this town and a sawmill and everything had a post office hundreds of people lived there and they predicted that the lumber would last 10 12 15 years i can't remember exactly but it lasted three before and that was it and once the lumber was done they took the sawmill packed it up shipped it to upper peninsula and the town was dead and they left it so you go out there fishing on the manistee there's an area called Deward, and you'll still see to this day the foundations of the buildings there. So anyway, the book follows a timeline from back then to the future. And another thing I learned is that um, the soldiers, when they returned from the Civil War, they were given 160 acres. No shit, 160 acres. And um, being that like people are scammers, right? So these real estate scammers, um, they would scoop up the land that was left behind by the loggers. And the logging guys, they would buy all this uh, land, they would get rid of all the tree, cut all the trees, and pine was the big one. It was called pine is king. And once all the, the trees were cut, they'd walk away and let the land go back to the state for back taxes. How's that for shit, huh? So anyway, there's all this land up there. It's all been cleared. And the real estate guys would buy it just for the back taxes. And then they would place an ad in like the Detroit newspaper or Chicago newspaper or Cleveland. And in the ad, it would say how rich the soil is in Crawford County. That's the county where Grayling is. And they'd say, oh, you could farm, you could have a good life, you know. And I could see how that would be appealing to a guy that's just come out of the Civil War, seen death and destruction and all this, and now he wants to start over with his family, right? So they get a free 160 acres, wants to come to Crawford County and start planting. Well, in case you didn't know, there's a reason that pine trees grew up there really well. Uh, pine trees grow in sandy, acidic soil. What that means is that nothing else can grow in sand but pine trees. So all these families show up, they arrive, they get their land, they try to grow stuff, and guess what? Nothing. They would make it one or two seasons and be done. So they go broke and leave. But there were a handful of people who found other ways to make a living. Some of them were railroad workers because the railroad would come all the way up to Grayling. Um, some of them were teamsters. They would haul things by horseback. Before the railroad, you either had to come up in a canoe or there'd be a trail and you would, um, a teamster with a wagon and horses would come out of Bay City. It was a, a real popular spot. You would go to Bay City, get a teamster, and there'd be a trail go from Bay City to Grayling. And uh, you would pay a guy to bring all your goods up there. Uh, another thing would be um, fishing and hunting guides. No shit. Um, people found out that it was like a really cool vacation spot. Uh, one of the things they said here is... Um, they figure about 1873 was the beginning of the resort industry. A guy by the name of I.F. Babbitt, and his son's name was Rube Babbitt. Sounds kind of funny. But they started a fish camp on the Asabo River after surveying the area for the Jackson, the Lansing, and the Saginaw Railroad. I thought that was kind of interesting. So they knew that fishing and hunting were, were, not, were good up there. And uh, so today, like if you drive along M72 and you'll pass signs... Uh, if you're either going from Grayling to Mayo or Mayo to Grayling, either way, you'll see these uh, roads that go towards the Asabo, like McMaster and Stevens and Wakely. And they're all bridges, right? McMaster Bridge and Stephen Stevens Bridge and Wakely Bridge. Well, these were all named after people that were able to stay and make a living 
Um, it's pretty interesting. I, I kind of like to know where those names came from, and it was for me it was interesting. And the book has a bunch of fishing stories and things like that. Um, what they found when the train arrived in Grayling, that really helped tourism, like I was saying, about 1873. And what would happen was if you were uh, outdoorsman or anything and you wanted to take a vacation, um, you would take a train from Chicago or Detroit or Cleveland. Some people even came from Europe and um, just for fish, but not for trout. They would go for grayling. So grayling, uh, in case you don't know, it's in the trout family, but it's different. It's more silver. And what grayling are known for is the tall dorsal fin on the back. And think of like a marlin in the ocean has a dorsal fin on the back, but this is a miniature, miniature version. So um, most of the grayling, when they would catch them, were not even 10 inches long. And the grayling was kind of its own worst enemy. They were um, light, they were tasty to eat, and even worse, the worst part was they were easy to catch. So easy, you could put a piece of yarn, a piece of corn, anything on a hook, and they would catch it. And so fishermen would put three hooks or three flies on, and it would not be uncommon to catch three at one time. So these guys would think nothing, I mean absolutely nothing, of catching a hundred fish in a day. No shit. So they would even... They would even catch so many that they would put them into barrels, they'd salt them, put them on the train, and ship them home to wherever they came from. No shit. So barrels full. And when you went out there, you, if you came from Chicago or Detroit or Cleveland, you're not going to stay for a day. You're going to stay for a week and two weeks even. And so they would send barrels upon barrels back home. It's crazy to think how they would do it. Nowadays, we think you know you'd fish for an afternoon, but these guys, two, three weeks was not uncommon. And the train company realized this, and one of the things they did was they would... Um, call it a fisherman's package deal, right? So you would buy, if you bought eight tickets, they're going to give you your own train car. They're going to take your train car. When you get to Grayling, there would be a spur line, like a line that shoots off the main line, and it would follow the river towards the town of Lovells, and they would drop you off down there and say, okay, here's your train car with all your goods that you brought with you. We'll be back in two weeks or three weeks to pick you up. Think about it. No shit. So it's like a camper, an RV camper, but it was a train. So if you were really rich, you even had your own train car built for you. Guys like Henry Ford and all that would have a train car of their own. Think of that. So you and your buddies, you get your train car, you get dropped off for a few weeks to fish. And then you hunted too, because at that time there's really no hunting law. So you could bring a gun, you'd shoot a couple of deer, some ducks, a bear, whatever, and that would be your food. It's pretty cool to think about it. Um, the book even talks about shining deer. So when we talk about shining deer, we think about driving around in your car, right? Back then, in the 1800s, you would put a lantern on the front of your boat and you'd float down the Asabo. And there's a story that the, t the town of Grayling knew there's a good spot um, just downstream from the town and everyone knew about it and you would go there and uh, the water's only knee deep and they knew every night the deer would come in for a drink. So if you needed a deer, that's what your family would do. You would go down there and they'd shoot a little doe or, or something for meat. And with a lantern on the front, it, it was really interesting. So I got I get sucked into all these stories. But so the book talks about nowadays we have no grayling in the river, right? It's known for trout. But they talk about the last time a grayling was actually caught in the river, and it's really really the the numbers bounce around. One says 1895, another one says uh, 1897. Uh, he goes, a uh, person by the name of Yuri Schertz claimed to catch it in the Manistee. And then another one says in the Sabo in 1905 and 1908. So they're really, really not sure. But the idea is that they believe that they, they want to blame the loggers for sending their logs down the stream. And as a log goes down, it scrapes the bottom. And what those fish need to survive is a gravelly bottom. And what happens is they lay eggs in that gravel. 
And without gravel, their eggs won't stay in the sand. They stay in the gravel. So when a log goes down, it clears out all the gravel so the fish aren't allowed to spawn. But what they, many people speculate was the fishing was too good that they blame fishermen for just taking so many fish out of the river and not, not letting them survive and whatever. But another interesting fact was they started to put trout in the Manistee and the Asabo River, and uh, they talk about putting German trout in uh, these rivers. And a German trout is what they call it back then. Nowadays, we call it a brown trout. It was really, really interesting. And I'll give you a couple of numbers here also. When they talk about uh, overfishing, so these guys would have a, a journal, and one of the journals that they were able to get a hold of, this guy had it for a number of years, and he in the year 1899, in two days they caught his uh, party caught 569 grayling. And then uh, the same date in the year 1900, a year later, they took 1,038. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Uh, 1901, 544. 1902, uh, they took 400 fish in four days. And there was eight people in that party. So it was really, really interesting to hear these numbers. But I couldn't imagine taking 1,000 fish. What would you do with 1,000 fish? And think about this. is There was no refrigerator. You're going to catch the fish, you're going to gut it, and you're going to put it into salt, put it in a barrel, and send it home. 1,000 freaking fish. Imagine that. So uh, that, that one really got me thinking. So anyway, another one about trout is we always thought, like here in Michigan, that the brook trout was native to the Sabo. But according to the author, this trout was introduced to the Sabo by a guy named Rube Babbitt. And you heard that name before. In 1890, he... Um, went over to the Boardman River and the, the fish were in the Boardman River and he caught some and brought them over to the Sabo. And back then they didn't call it the brook trout. It was called the Eastern speckled trout. Really, really interesting. So I shouldn't say I scratch that, not the Boardman, the Jordan. I got them mixed up. He brought them from the Jordan, which is over by Traverse City. And then he planted them on the East branch of the Sabo. And what would happen was this was before the grayling disappeared. This Rube Babbitt guy knew that um, he could see that the number of grayling were getting less and less and less. And it turns out for quite a number of years, the grayling and the brook trout were able to live together. And one of the theories too, is that when the brown trout or German trout was introduced, that it was so aggressive, it ate any of the little uh, grayling that were left. Cause the, the brown trout is, is a sport fish. It's like a predator as a matter of fact. So real, real interesting. Um, another cool thing is the author would interview people and he quoted an interview with the guy named Henry Steffen from Steffen's Bridge, Steffen Road, right? When he got there, he loved the area so much, he bought 40 acres along the river's bank. And uh, the cool thing, I like this, it ties into uh, uh, current history, but in 1896, he had a contract to catch 5,000 trout for the North Northville hatchery. Think about that. So the hatchery down here, nowadays we think a hatchery of stocking the Asabo River. It happens every year in uh, April or early May, depending on what the weather is. They stock uh, the Asabo River in quite a few places. But So now it's the opposite. That river was stocking the hatchery right down here in Northville in Hatchery Park. And his contract, he was going to receive 10 cents each. And so that year, he was able to catch 3,200 of them. But he was stopped because of a log drive, which hung up the river for several weeks. So he had to postpone the balance of the contract uh, till that fall. So there's I could probably go on for a whole episode about this book. But I'm going to put a picture of it on Instagram. It's a old book. 
it might be hard to find a copy. If you went on to Amazon, you'll see one on there every once in a while, used copy. But it's called The Old Asabo by Hazen Miller. And if you're interested in up north stuff, there's a couple of, I shouldn't say a couple, there's a lot of cool stories in there. One about a guy wrestling a deer and all that. Has an old map of the area and things like that. And talks about grayling, uh, all the little a handful of ghost towns and things like that. And I like reading about the numbers of grayling and and I like reading about the numbers of grayling and things like that. So uh, The Old Asabo by Hazen Miller, check it out. Uh, it's a really cool book to read. And this is Rackhouse Rammies. I'm going to be right back. Rackhouse Ramblings episode number 10 is back. I probably sound a little different because I am standing up and I'm going to do our bourbon spotlight. So episode 10, we're going to do another mixed drink. It's called a mint julep lemonade. Hell yeah, just in time for spring. So it's light, it's flavorful, it's mint, it's bourbon, lemonade, pretty cool. And um, if you search on the internet, you know, mint julep, uh, lemon mint julep, you'll see all these recipes. I copied mine from uh, whiskeyadvocate.com. So um, there's all kinds of similar ones and all that sort of thing. They all use fresh mint and simple syrup and lemon and ice and all that. Uh, they're all the same, but I just picked this one, so we're going to give it a try. It's uh, uh, Before I start, you know what? I, I, they mentioned simple syrup in a lot of these recipes, and I said I didn't know what it was. I had to buy it, but really, you can make simple syrup on your own. Simple syrup is just sugar water. So what you would do is you do one cup of sugar, one cup of water. You bring it to a boil. And that dissolves the sugar. You let it cool, and you have simple syrup. That's it. Just water. It's just sugar water. So for this uh, this drink that I'm going to make, I'm going to use Woodford Reserve. So we're going to do a Woodford Reserve uh, lemon mint julep. So the first thing you do is uh, it's calling for like a sh uh, ounce and a half of uh, bourbon. So here we go. I'm going to pour that in. There's that part, and. Prior to doing that, what we're going to do is I'm going to, the recipe says you take a couple of mint leaves, put them in their fingers, and with your fingertips, kind of rub the leaves around inside the glass. And what I'm doing is I'm kind of going around um, the inside edges of a small drinking glass. So it's kind of has that mint oil on the inside. So let's go back to mixing. So I put in an ounce and a half of bourbon. I've got ice in my mixer. And next is going to be ounce and a half of the simple syrup or sugar water, if you want to call it that. And it kind of ties into spring because that's what the hummingbirds uh, drink. Anne makes it for him. As a matter of fact, she's got a jug of uh, sugar water for the hummingbirds. So I'm going to do about the same thing. About an ounce and a half of simple syrup. Then we're going to do about an ounce and a half of lemon juice. And these things, actually, you can get all these things at Kroger, as a matter of fact, even the Woodford. So let's do an ounce and a half of lemon. And I suppose you could probably do the same thing with just lemonade, right? If you, Because lemonade might have some sugar in it. And then the last thing is water. So I've got bottled water. Do an ounce and a half of that. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty simple, really. There we go. So there's all the ingredients are in my lemon mint julep. So they are all in there. And now I have my new mixing stuff from Amazon. 
I'm gonna give it a shake and it fits one cup inside the other. It's kind of cool. I don't know if you guys can hear that, but I'm just mixing all the ingredients with the ice. And I have a strainer that I'm gonna strain this with. It smells really good. Oh yeah. I like how when you shake it up with the ice, it gets like a little bit of foamy going in there. So it has a strainer on it. Oh wow. Pretty cool. I did that. And actually I'm gonna put a couple of the ice cubes in there because it reminds me of summer summertime. And then as a garnish, you take a sprig of uh, mint. There we have that. And before I drink it, I am going to take a quick picture of that so you guys can see what I just made. There's one picture. Gotta show the bottle of Woodford. Let's take another picture. Boom. Nice. Let's have a taste. Outstanding. Wow. It's like a minty lemonade. Mm. So there you have it. Episode number 10 of Rackhouse Ramblings. Sorry for the delay. I will try and get another one going before seven days from now. <laughs> keep the keep the momentum going. There you go. This week's episode of Rackhouse Ramblings. Thanks for listening. Uh, like I said, I always like to get the feedback. Rackhouserambling at gmail.com or shoot me a text. Leave me a message on Podbean. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.